Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to enhance physical and psychological well-being and encourage community. And I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are friendly tribal animals and that when we live in small enough groups, we take care of one another. We live cooperatively and collaboratively. Our guest today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics may be familiar to some of you who have been listening to the program. Dr. Maria Vittoria Mangini is one of our elders who spoke out on my series, Confessions of Psychedelic Elders, which is being published as a book that Maria Vittoria is in called Psychedelic Wisdom. It'll be out this December. In this book, Maria Vittoria, as well as others, you might say outed themselves and talked about their courageous self-experimentation with psychedelic substances over the last 30, and in some cases 40, and in one case 50 years. Check her out. Go to Google and read about Maria Vittoria Mangini. She is part of the psychedelic renaissance in a big way, and she's a psychedelic visionary. Welcome, Maria Vittoria. Well, welcome back. I'm this wonderful to see you and to be here with you. I'm delighted to be here today. And I think I might be one of the people for whom 50 years is actually the time period. It might even actually be longer than that. Really? Oh, yeah, because I had my first encounters with psychedelics before they were illegal. Before they were illegal. Well, so did I. Do you remember? Just I'm sure we talked about it in the other interview. But when was that first psychedelic experience for you? I was in I was just before my 16th birthday. So that was 1966. Right before your 16th birthday. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. And, you know, much of my adult life since then has been kind of a footnote to that experience because it really um, changed my direction and made a profoundly lasting impression on me. Would you say that was a profoundly positive impression or a negative or neutral? Well, um, you know, it depends on whom you might be consulting. I think if you had asked my parents, that might have not been interpreted as a positive direction. They would have liked for me to have lived a more conventional life and married a rich man and lived in a big house and, you know, taken advantage of all my advantages. But um, now that I'm in my 70s, I see that one of, I think the prevailing single insight from that early experience was that death is perfectly safe and that there was nothing to be afraid of. And I have really um, lived most of my adult life in that realization. And now as I'm demonstrably closer to the end of my life than I am to the beginning, it's a very... um, useful and functional uh, kind of insight to be carrying along. I I asked you the question of whether that first psychedelic experience at age just before 16 was positive, negative, or neutral, and you answered in terms of what your parents would say. Suppose I asked the same question, but I won't repeat it. What is Maria Ventoria Mangini say? Well, um, you know, I went to school in a, a parochial school where the same group of 50 students started in kindergarten and stayed together till eighth grade. And back in the early part of this century, someone actually found, there were 50 students in that group. Somebody actually found 37 of those students and brought them together for a class reunion. And you could, you know, I think I'm probably overestimating my perspicacity here, but I think you could probably look at that group and decide, I felt like I could decide who had had an experience with psychedelics that had been transformative and who had not. And the people who had were changed by it. And they were living different lives, eating different diets, pursuing different professions. The people who had, I thought, not had those experiences had pretty much stayed in the um, in the set of expectations that had been determined for them. And um, I feel like I've had a lot more adventures and a lot more um, uh, color and texture in my life because of those experiences and because they happened for me at such a young age. Um, it depends on what you count as positivity and success. If it, If you're looking at 
whether, you know, a particular activity or experience makes you prosperous. I wouldn't nominate psychedelic experience for doing that. Um, but there are other things in life to, to be um, concerned about and to value. And I think it's really uh, made my life a lot richer. Well, there, there is, uh, I think, the country of Bhutan has a happiness czar. Mm -hmm. So if we ask the question about the effect of that early psychedelic life-changing experience on your life happiness scale, how would you place it measured oh. that way rather than financial prosperity? It's hard to say um, because, of course, you can't predict what might have been if you'd gone a different direction. But I consider myself to be a quite happy person. And uh, I've been very satisfied with my personal life, with my professional life, with my community life, with my friend groups. Um, I, I really feel that I've had a very um, positive and in many ways privileged and fortunate life in some ways because of decisions that I was um, cued into the possibility of making because of insights that came from psychedelics. I remember one story that we either talked about or I read about in your life where at one point, and correct me if my memory is off here, please. I'm totally open to that at any time. <laughs> um, but I, I recall a story about you at one point going into the Haight-Ashbury Medical Clinic barefoot and that another point in your life, you were <laughs> chairman of the board of directors of the Haight-Ashbury Medical Clinic, Dr. Maria Vittoria Bongini. That's actually correct, Dr. Miller. I was I got an award from the free clinic in I think it was 2004 or 2005. I was uh, I, I was a patient of the clinic because I had cut my barefoot in the Haight-Ashbury. I was a lead clinician in the medical section after I finished my training as a nurse practitioner and a nurse midwife. And then I was a member of the board of directors for a little over a decade. And then I was the chair of the board of directors in 2003. And I got an award from the free clinic for having been the only person to have been all of those things in the same lifetime. Fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, it's just thrilling to hear you say it and to be with you. Really, I can feel it. Well, you know, you you undoubtedly know, and it's appropriate for me to say that the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic is a historic and extremely important and uh, uh, revered institution for what it was able to accomplish and what it has represented all these years. That's a really, David Smith, the founder of the Free Clinic is still living, and he is also one of the psychedelic elders who really deserves to be uh, appropriately appreciated. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. I'll reach out to David. Maybe we can get him for an interview. M Maria, Victoria, I don't want to ever not say both names. I, I'm just, I'm such a fan of your name. I'm a fan of names that end with an I or an A or an O because they sort of carry you away. The difficulty I have with my own name, Richard, is the D at the end is a hard stop. Richard, it's like a period, done. But Maria Vittoria, just I, you can almost sing the song. But the, again, letting back to my question, if the number 10 represents maximum confidence and the number zero represents, or the non-number zero represents no confidence, how confident are you that our American experiment in democracy and republic will be here in five years? Oh, that's a very uh, profound and concerning question. And you bring to light some uh, issues that I think any concerned citizen should be thoughtful about. You know, I'm the daughter of an American historian. And so um, I have, I was, I was raised to like read a daily newspaper and that it was a responsibility of good citizenship to keep up with current events and that sort of thing. And um, sometimes it's a real struggle to do that because um, I, there are so many complexities that have entered into modern um, social and political life. I, it's difficult, um, among other things, it's difficult to figure out who to listen to. You know, um, my husband, my late husband used to listen to uh, Amy Goodman. And um, I think, although I think she has a, a really remarkable level of insight and she covers a lot of important territory, she's also got a perspective that 
is sometimes quite unremittingly negative, and it's very discouraging to listen to her all the time if you don't listen to anyone else. On the other hand, I think there are sometimes people who just gloss over things, and you know, like the my my current partner kind of doesn't appreciate my devotion to watching the broadcast news because he says, "Well, is that a you know is that a news story?" It's sort of more like so you you know the old Malvina Reynolds song "Garbage." in which she talks about, I watched a story on the television about the mayor's middle name, and I finished it in time to catch the all-star bingo game, you know, and they're filling up my mind with garbage. And he, his perspective, because he comes from a media background, is really much more dramatically critical about that than mine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And getting back to the question, <laughs> what, what more do you want to say? What more can we, can we unpack about the question? I mean, it seems to me that there's more of a threat at this particular time in history to our democracy and to our republic than certainly I have ever experienced in my lifetime. And I wonder if, you know, how far back in history we have to go to the Civil War, perhaps, as to when there was a threat that that appeared to be as great. Am, am I exaggerating, or do you have a sense of what I'm talking about? Well, I certainly do, and you know that's in part the reason that I made reference to my parents because um, there were certainly social ruptures in my own family and in lots of families during the time around um, Nixon's resignation and the um, controversies about the war in Southeast Asia um, and uh, that that were. Um, profoundly disruptive and and um, civil disruptions and disorders proliferated around that time. And we ended up with a president who left office in disgrace. And, um, you know, I, I think I was younger, more resilient and um, more um, thoughtful about the prospect that, it, you know, after a blow, one can bounce back uh, at that time in my life for both myself and for this um, republic and and the 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 political polity that we we were inhabiting i'm older and more um i'm i'm more aware of the way in which i'm kind of walking in a minefield in certain ways as i think people get as they get older i'm i'm profoundly distressed by the way in which people with you know, both polarities of political opinion tend to regard people who don't agree with them, not just as badly informed or, you know, wrong headed, but wicked. And um, that's a real problem. I mean, that's how I believe the genocide started in Rwanda. The Belgians got in there and convinced the two populations that the other part of the their civilization was evil. And that I that really distresses me when people represent political differences in that way. Like you can't compromise with evil. You're talking about a situation in which people frame differences as one side being morally wrong. Yes. yes. And so we see religion rearing its head and coming into play because religion is really the home of the morality that is often ascribed or the negative morality to the other side, wouldn't you say? Well, I think there certainly are um, intolerances that have been historically dragged forward by religion of uh, lots of different religions, but um, you know, it comes from a lot of different places. I mean, I, I can, I can imagine the kind of extreme views that I'm talking about being generated by somebody who is otherwise in complete alignment with my feelings like i you know i think the natural environment is alive i think it's part of our responsibility as humans to steward and protect what influence we have over its well-being but i don't think people should you know blow up power plants or do you know those kinds of um aggressively violent activities on behalf of those sentiments regardless of how much i might agree with the sentiments and it isn't just religion that generates that kind of stuff. Yes, it isn't just religion. I agree. I didn't mean to frame it that way as if it was. It's a it's a major contributing factor. But people can see something, some other person as being other or bad without necessarily having a, a, a religious connotation to it or implication. I think when we catch ourselves doing that, when we catch ourselves saying that somebody who holds views that are different from our own 
is is intrinsically evil or wicked because mm-hmm. of those views. We have to stop and like reflect on how that works. Mm-hmm. Well, one of, one of my concerns that I'm trying to bring out in this conversation is that there does appear to be a movement in our country to turn the country into a theocracy again. Well, you or know, not again a, a, to go back to other countries which have had theocracies. No, we, we never have. Time- Yes, we sure did. Where do you think those you think about what think about the picture that you think about the picture that third graders who have whom I believe have a curricular element that's about the um, about Thanksgiving that's presented as part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Think about what the pictures that are drawn and displayed or at least historically have been drawn and displayed about that holiday and celebration. There are all these people in very severe clothing. Sometimes the men have a white sort of ascot type stock bib. They have very kind of dramatic hats. They were the colonists, the people who came here looking for religious freedom, but their ideas about religious freedom were more directed at freedom for them to practice what they believed than they were toward letting other people practice things that weren't what they believed. So there was a theocracy in this country. It was actually founded on a theocracy. In a well, world. point well taken. That is, that is accurate. They were, they were known for wanting freedom for themselves in order to instill their own point of view on others. And that's, that's well, well said. But the the difficulty for me, and you know, there are things that my parents said to me when I was growing up that I didn't really have the insight to be able to understand what they were trying to say. But if they said them often enough, they stuck. And I know my mother used to say all the time, the pendulum goes one way, it's going to have to go the other way. And I didn't have enough life experience to exper- to appreciate how true that is. But it turns out that that was a useful insight, and I'm finding use for it now. Um, and there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of anger in our uh, community and culture about uh, people, uh, about a kind of in-your-face um, activities about, you know, and things that used to be private, that, that there are definitely people in this community and culture who are offended by having to see aspects of other people's private business, which those people are, it's not like those people aren't entitled to have that private business. It's that there's a bunch of people who don't want to see it, you know, or they don't want their kids to see it. And um, it's sort of like people who don't want smokers around them and stuff like that. You know, they believe that there's something um, malignant or unhealthy or just not for them about certain kinds of um practices and social experiences and they're trying desperately to snuff those things out and so would you put the people who are outlawing books in certain states in that category well i you know i have a uh, th- that the the whole idea that you, you know is, isn't that what they burned savonarola for <laughs> you know i mean like we did this before already in this i actually went there when I was in Florence and stood on the spot where they burned Savonarola, because I think those things have a tendency to recur in human history. Ongoing, repetitive acts. Who was it, Royce, who said those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it? At least that one, and maybe others, yeah. No, we're we're in a very precarious and difficult time, but um, I also really believe in the intrinsic goodness of the inner guidance that if people can hear it will help them get through precarious times there's a i forget if it's the psalm or the salat it's a sufi prayer but it starts out something like let me hear your voice your voice which quietly cometh from within i i mixed on what you just said in that on the one hand i agree with you that eventually we're going to get there but on the other hand our lifetimes are short so some of us don't get to see it. If you're born at the wrong time, you can you can live through a great deal of negativity before you see the before there's light. Well, I'm tempted to chide you a little bit, Dr. Miller, because think about it. You know, like I remember where we started this conversation, and I said some of the core insights that have really guided me as a grown up have come from my early psychedelic experiences, and I would not have believed that we would reach the point where we could have an open discussion about these things again in my lifetime. And that has happened. 
That has happened. And in my lifetime, a man went to jail for publishing on the pub, on the cover of his magazine, a black hand holding a white hand. Ralph, and he went to Ralph Gleason went to jail for that. And so we, we, we certainly have made progress in that regard. But an area that we haven't had made progress, which I'd like to now ask you about, is the recent overturn of Roe versus Wade. And what, oh. do you, what, what will you share with us on your thoughts on that and the implications of that overturn for our country? This is, um, you know, there, the, uh, this is the pendulum. You know, I think the, the, there's been a, a, a political force sort of pushing the pendulum to swing to the other end of the spectrum for some time. Um, I think that the uh, the folks who are delighted by the the Supreme Court recent Supreme Court ruling about abortion um, have been working toward that uh, having that happen for a very long time in a very uh, disciplined and uh, consistent way, and I have to say. Um, the folks who stand on the other side of that, uh, I think sometimes, um, are busy doing the work. And as a result, they, they haven't had the opportunity or the energy to do the kind of political organizing and particularly grassroots political organizing that has started to accomplish some of these changes, moving things in the direction of more conservative values. And so, um, it's a wake-up call in a lot of ways for people who uh, hold to what they would identify as progressive views. And, you know, I'm going to kind of lump um, uh, uh, freedom of choice for women to control their own reproductive functions as a progressive view. Um, to be uh, alert for opportunities to be active in the community. I think I saw a statistic just in the last couple of days that local uh, school board elections um, like even just a couple of years ago, about 25% of them were uncontested. And now it's, um, it's down to, uh, it's about, no, 75% of them were uncontested. And now it's down to about 50% because people are waking up to the fact that they have to participate at the grassroots level if they want to have something to say about what goes on in their communities. And I'm trying to think, there's a line from, I believe it's from A Man for All Seasons, in which they talk about um, Thomas More. And I think that's the play that's about Thomas More. And they say something like, if you cut down the laws to get to the devil and the wind blows across England, where are you going to hide? So, you know, whatever we think about this law, it's the law. And if we want it not to be the law, we have to change the law. Do you think this Roe versus Wade is a harbinger of things to come with regard to further subjugation of women in our country? Unfortunately, and I do. And that's one of the reasons why I say we have to get busy and work on um, building the kind of power base that people who have ideas that are distinctly different from the ideas that I have, for example, have been able to do because of years of, you know, creating think tanks and educating college students and trying to, you know, instill their ideas deeply in people. I think that I kind of saw this kind of thing coming when um, big corporations like Clear Channel started buying up community radio, because community radio has always been a place where not only did people get like disaster information, but it was a place where a controversy could be aired at the local level where people could be motivated to take a, a stand in relation to things like who's on the school board or who's on the city council. And I think we've lost a lot of that. I think we're very fortunate in Mendocino Humboldt to be able to have a community radio station that still functions that way. And I think you have one also in, in uh, Philo. Yes, uh, KZYX. That's right, indeed. But, you know, I do think that the, um, the that, that pendulum thing, people who want to there's there's such a lot of uh, different contrib contributions to be made to something like this coming about in this country. But I do think that it opens the door for other rights that people have understood were constitutionally theirs and belong to them as people in this nation to be rescinded because of opinions of a, what is turning out to be a very conservative court, which, according to the system that we're functioning in, is acting within its um, constitutional purview. It's a creepy kind of scary situation. Very typically, 
when we see a, a takeover by those who are considered to be on the far right, we see a loss of rights for minority groups, for women, and we're seeing evidence of that in this country right now. So Roe versus Wade is a further attack on women. CNN just did a major documentary on the rise of anti-Semitism in this country. I don't know if you happen to uh, hear about it. Well, I didn't, but you know, part of my early education from my American historian father was that you're supposed to read the daily newspaper. And um, if you follow the news, you see that these things are happening. So we're seeing it happening against women on the national level. We're seeing it happening against Jews on the national level. And certainly we've seen so much evidence of it against people of color on national television, particularly with the shootings. So here is here are th- uh, three areas of evidence of movement against rather than cooperation and collaboration for. How does that make you feel as an elder? I don't even know where to begin, Dr. Miller. You know, um, I think that even as somebody who has I think had a slightly greater than average appreciation for the different kinds of oppression that are meted out to people who don't look like me in this culture and society. Um, Some of the more recent revelations of how systemically these kinds of oppressive um, behaviors and circumstances are pervade is um, horrifying, startling, um, energizing. Um, You know, really to uh, appreciate how both um, systemic discrimination against people who are not part of the privileged groups and the advantages that are delivered to people who are part of the privileged groups have kind of structured society in a way that's really out of balance. And in that, just being able to sit down and look that in the face, frankly, I think that's a step. And then the next thing for me is to realize that elder or not, PhD or not, you know, blue-eyed Italian-American with a colorful name or not, I have to move over in order to make space for people who haven't had the kinds of advantages and opportunities that I have had to take some of the places that I might otherwise be able to occupy. And I have to be willing to relinquish relinquish some of that in order for there to be space for other people to expand. Well, that's a very beautiful and, and if I may use the word, enlightened way of of sharing of, of what we all have. Yet at the same time, there's so much of the opposite going on that it's leading me to ask you these questions. Well, but isn't that, you know, like... The the word elder has popped up in this conversation a few times, and that really is an area that's very much of interest to me. It's not just all this gray hair. It's also that <laughs> um, the people who are my teachers and mentors are now a lot of them in their 90s, and a lot of them are no more. We just recently have lost Ann Shulgin, who is, was a very important and powerful influence on me personally, on the women's organization that I and other women started some years ago, on the the community around psychedelics, on people who think about the way that the psyche is structured and how we appreciate the number of different facets of ourselves that we might uncover as we do self-exploration. It's a tremendous loss to lose somebody like Anne. It's like she she was she was um, like a watershed of of uh, resources that we are no longer able to access except in the limited ways that recording and so on and the memories of those of us who experienced her make it possible for us to do. And the idea that somebody like me has to, be, you know, that, that, that communities need elders, that elder, that elderhood is not just a number, that it represents having a storehouse of wisdom that you can apply to, um, you know, hopefully moving in the direction of justice in the community. And that somehow I'm now nominated to fulfill that function is like, I mean, it's startling. It really is. And um, it feels a little daunting, but I think communities need elders. And I also think, you know, just returning the conversation back to the 
direction of psychedelics a little bit. The people who are the the psychedelic elders, the ones who are the who have stuck with it and provided leadership in this kind of environment over the last fifty or sixty years, when it was not a well, um, it was not it, there. There was a certain amount of opportunity cost from taking that position. I think a lot of those people are um, not well situated as they age. They're 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 either financially not secure or health wise not secure or socially isolated still because they're in communities where they're kind of an, an, an anomaly. And I think that it would be a good thing for us to take some notice of that because those people have um, kept alive a certain kind of idea and ideal during a very dark and unpleasant time. But like the idea that somehow I have to participate at that level freaks me out a little bit. I have to say, I didn't, I didn't, I don't nominate myself for that role. <laughs> you didn't, don't think you signed up for this role, but you are fortunate enough to have been around long enough now that you get the role assigned to you. Well, you know, it's not just a number. I know a lot of older people who um, are uh, there. People can be old without being wise. I <laughs> I was just mentioning to my wife last night, what the heck is going on with this guy, uh, Pelosi's husband, that at 82 years old, he he's driving alone, drunk and gets caught and gets a DUI. I think th that's an example of what you're saying. Just because you're old doesn't mean you get to be wise. I mean, not just for the embarrassment for her, but what it, but the, what it says about the poor guy himself, that at 82 years old, he still doesn't have it together to know what to do, not to drive a, a vehicle on a road while under the influence. Well, the difficulty with that, and this is one of the reasons that I find that I kind of shy away from identifying with that role, is that um, it's tricky to imagine yourself as powerful and influential in yourself, you know, like to think of yourself that way. Because that, if, if you're not careful, that can become a, a justification for cutting corners in, in certain ways. And I have to suspect that somebody who does something like that, somebody with the characteristics that you're describing about this fella and who does something like that, somehow he came to believe that he was exempt from something, like the rule that you shouldn't drive when you're altered, you know? Like, what was he thinking? But where did he get to the place where he could think that? Is he just a person who's been so not subject to the rules all his life that this is just finally his mistaken notions finally catching up with him? Or did this accumulate in some other way? Or what happened there? I'd venture a guess that being the husband of a state senator comes with some great privileges. And this isn't the first time that he's been caught driving under the influence, but maybe the first time that he's been outed for it, where the officer had the courage to actually arrest him rather than give him a pass. Do you, you think? Do you, you see don't, him? Do you, you see him saying to the CHP guy, "Do you know who I am?" Ooh. <laughs> uh, I don't know if he would do it necessarily as coarsely as that, but I think uh, he might. Uh, well, and I can't be sure. I'm just guessing now. But based on being a chemical dependence expert, I would say you don't suddenly become a heavy drinker at age 82. That just doesn't happen. I mean, <laughs> that's a, something that's been going on for a long time. And uh, uh, but it, I don't I don't want to make our program more well, about no, him because no. we're really just giving examples of people who didn't get wiser with age and we can leave his name out of it really completely. I think you're making a good point, though, because um, it's not a single event. It's an accumulation of practices. And um, I think when you said that my expression of do, do you know who I am was a kind of a coarse version of that, that that's what I was trying to say when I said people have to move over and get out of their position of privilege. Because um, little increments of being able to use things like that to deflect disapproval or the consequences of your bad behavior or, you know, that that becomes a, a kind of a habit pattern, as which I'm sure you as a person who knows a lot about um, substance use and other behaviors that people would like to eradicate, but once they become habitual, they're harder to get rid of, understands how that happens. Yeah, though clearly uh, acting as if one has a sense of entitlement 
is, is an equal opportunity employer. It doesn't necessarily come just with those who drink or drug too much. It comes from those who also who have born with silver spoons in their mouth and some who just grow into that as a way of being, as a habituation over time because they lose sight of their own humanity and the humanity of others by being so caught up in whatever the particular success that they, they might have had or those around them had. Have, have you ever witnessed directly white supremacy? Yes. <laughs> I have a scar on my face underwear. That's the reason I never wore contact lenses. I uh, had a very uh, active and enlightened uh, English teacher as a high school student who took me to Louisiana uh, as a high school student. And uh, I, uh, it took us about maybe 15 minutes to get arrested. And um, part of that experience was being smacked in the face with a sapped glove by a police person. And I had ra- been raised in a community where I found I experienced the police as my friends. And it was the first time I had ever really uh, been shaken in that belief. And I really got it that, um, you know, I was an outside agitator. And that put me in the category of people who could be treated that way and could be discriminated against, whereas I had previously never been assigned to that category. And it it made me aware of what other people who don't look like me experienced at that time. And I was, that was also right around the same time that I first took LSD. A a major learning experience in your life, for sure. Mm -hmm. It, 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 It reminds me of a time when I was a teenager at the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and I got arrested and put in jail because my date in the car that I was driving that had a broken taillight uh, was a woman of color, a a black co-ed. And when the policeman saw her uh, in the car next to me, he said, is she with you? And I said, yeah, she's my date tonight. He said, you guys are coming. You're coming with me right now. And he took us both to jail. Well, I think it's a good thing to let those stories come out, you know, like to tell those stories if the opportunity arises to do it appropriately, because I think a lot of our young people just don't even imagine that that could even happen. Like, how could be how could people be so thick headed and unenlightened? Yes. Yes. I went to get a haircut with a fellow student from next room in my dormitory as I was a 16-year-old freshman at University of Illinois. The guy in the next room was also from New York. We were in Champaign, but we were two New Yorkers. His name was Ed, Abe Woodson. He was a black football player from White Plains who was at University of Illinois on a scholarship. So one day, Abe and I are sitting and talking. We decide to go and get a haircut together. So we walk into town. I guess it was Urbana. And, uh, and went into a barber shop, and uh, I watched him get thrown out of the barber shop. Of course, I ran with him, but I watched him get thrown, literally grabbed and thrown out of the barber shop for his color. Dog my cats. Yeah. And it was really an eye opener because growing up in New York City, I didn't witness that. Not that it wasn't happening in New York City, but I was in such a mixed neighborhood that there were people of all different sizes, shapes, colors, and everything else imaginable. And and in the high school I went to, Stuyvesant High School, which was very progressive, it was a noted high school, we didn't have that. In fact, the uh, proudly, the president of my graduating class in 1955, Cuthbert Courtney Callender, was a black man. And uh, and so that spoke a lot to, you know, who our class was. And then I went to college and that was one of the that was within a few months of arriving in Champaign-Urbana that the that the first incident with Abe happened. You know, my in my family home, one of the things my folks were really um, vigilant about was that no people we didn't use any kind of slurs. We didn't use any expressions to um, categorize people as um you know, the kinds of things that were ethnic slurs that were common in this country all over the place. I'm sure this came from the fact that my father was a New Yorker. My father was born on the kitchen table on 58th Street. Oh, wow. Um, And he had been in a community where people used epithets against one another pretty um, freely. 
Yeah. And uh, there was not really, I mean, he was very strict about that, but there was not really ever any occasion for there to be anything to care about because I grew up in Burlingame, California. And nobody, nobody talked like that when I was growing up. It wasn't until I went to New York to school that I actually experienced that people did talk that way. Yes, very much so. I grew up with that kind of language around me for sure. You said your father was born on a kitchen table in 58th Street. I, I think you meant that literally, didn't you? I do. He, he yeah. was. Yeah. Yes, because I had friends in Manhattan where the whole family lived in one room. And so uh, my friend, for example, slept on a board that was over the on top of the bathtub, on oh, top yes. of the bathtub <laughs> in that one room. Sure. So the room had the bath bathtub. It had the kitchen it had the area where they all slept. And so when you said he was born on the kitchen table, I, I knew you meant it literally. He was. Well, my grandmother, by the time I was old enough to be able to remember and, and participate, um, lived on Second uh, and Forty Eighth in a third floor walk up, which at the time when she and her, my grandfather moved there didn't have hot water. The bathroom was in the hall. The toilet was in the hall. There was a bathtub in the flat, and there was a kitchen with a sink, but the toilet was outside. And um, you know that was where they lived, and they lived there even when I came to go to college in. 1967, they were still living there and they lived there for a few years after that. And um, that was just, you know, nobody, nobody thought twice about that. Like they had got hot water by that time. That was a big deal. I'm going to switch us back to psychedelics. We have a little more time. If you lived in a country where every citizen could ingest anything they wanted in the privacy of their home and a young couple came to you and they said, we have teenage children. 14 to 17 and a half. And we'd like your opinion, your professional guidance on how and when we introduce them to these psychedelic medicines that are now legal in our country and available to all citizens. We want some guidance from you as a professional, as an elder. What would you say to this couple? Well, one of my elders, and I think I may have mentioned her to you previously, was a woman whose name was Betty Grover Eisner. She was one of the early psychedelic researchers. Um, she was a colleague of Sidney Cohen and Oscar Janiger. And I knew her toward the end of her life. And in 1998, she wrote an article in which she took the three well-known determinants of a psychedelic experience, drug set and setting, and added a fourth one, which she called Matrix. And Matrix, she defined as the social environment from which people come to a psychedelic experience and to which they return afterward. And she identified that as a determinant of what kind of experience people had and how useful it might be to them. And I think that's a key factor in making a recommendation in a situation like the one you describe, because you have to think not only about what the preferences and experience of the parents might be in a situation like that, but what is the social matrix from which those young people come and to which they're going to go back after any experience that's offered to them? And um, how will they cope with that depending upon how their uh, other elders and their peers and uh, their network uh, regards those experiences. And um, I think that, you know, the, the, the cannabis culture and economy in uh, Mendocino and Humboldt counties is kind of uh, in the doldrums right now. But a lot of, <clears throat> pardon me, a lot of the time while I've been living there, it's been a mainstay of the economic life of the community. And especially when my, my community moved there in 1982, the kids who were, um, from households where cannabis was being grown and where it was a part of the family income, oftentimes were instructed not to talk about it because they were afraid they were going to, the families were afraid they were going to bring down trouble on the family. And that put kids in a really difficult kind of situation. So I think that one thing to think about is, is that, how is it going to impact what young people's relationship to other young people who may not have had the opportunity to have an, uh, an experience like that might be. And then also I have a kind of idealized idea about universal access to psychedelics. For myself, I believe that these are sacred medicines and that these experiences should not be vulgarized and they're not toys. And it's very important for people to take them seriously and um, treat them reverently. And um, 
ideally, it should be available for people to have those. I'd like, I think that that's what the measures in Oregon that are attempting to remove some of the criminal sanctions for these experiences are trying to do. They're trying to create an environment where um, people can reliably and without having to conceal the fact that they're interested by this or maybe have experienced it, can have uh, the opportunity to learn what these substances can teach in a safe and supportive environment. And that's the difficulty is that we haven't got that yet. Did you write about Matrix in your doctoral dissertation? I didn't because I didn't know. I, I didn't meet, Betty didn't write that article until 1998. I see. So I didn't. I knew her actually when around the time that that article came out, but I was already pretty much finished with my dissertation by the time that I knew about it. Where can practitioners or the public find out more about Matrix? That article uh, is it's in PubMed under her name, which is Betty Grover Eisner, E I S N E R, and I believe the word Matrix occurs in the title of the article, and it's the date is 1998. It sounds to me like if one is going to incorporate Matrix into one's protocol for administering psychedelics, then the vetting process becomes lengthier. The interviewing process prior to the experience becomes substantially lengthier. Is that correct? Well, there's that, but there's also what is the community's perspective about psychedelics? And this is something that I think, you know, I think indigenous traditional users of psychoactive substances have become increasingly protective about their legacy and heritage. You know, if you look at the ways in which the Mazatec community and Maria Sabina specifically were affected by the popularization of what they knew and held sacred with people joining the party who didn't have that kind of reverential approach and maybe the outcomes were... Um, not what they would have wanted, but they le were less than desirable for the community, or the original holders of that knowledge. I think people have become very um, protective to make sure that those things don't happen again. And I also think that, um, you know, I've, I've taken an interest in an, a, a writer, an individual whose name is Stephen Jenkinson, who um, I would describe him as a stand-up philosopher. And I have been very taken by his writing. He's a masterful wordsmith, and he has some really, really good ideas. And he wrote a book some years ago called Die Wise about his experience as a person who um, was involved in palliative medicine. He recently, more recently, wrote a book about elderhood called Come of Age. And I have been, uh, you know, a student of his work for several years now. I traveled to Iceland some years ago to study with him and then later to Wales. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, he um, talks about the fact that we um, modern Western Euro-Americans are often very uh, ready to join in any kind of spiritual practice or tradition except the one from which we come hereditarily, you know. And I found that to be uh, actually pretty true of a lot of people that I know and my own experience also, that like I, you know, I, I have been asked by um, people whom I regard as seers and oftentimes people who came from a different kind of cultural background from me. Don't your ancestors cry that you're not doing the things that they taught you? And I find that, um, you know, it's kind of pursuant to your appreciation for my first name and, and the fact that I come from an Italian-American background and that there were certain kinds of things that were available to me from that background that I am waking up to and espousing and participating in more as I get older. And one of them is the fact that in Western Europe, there was a tradition for uh, universal access to what was almost certainly a psychedelic experience and really certainly an unusual opportunity to alter consciousness in the Eleusinian mystery. And um, I, I, I do think that there is a tradition for us people who come from a Euro-American kind of background to pursue and to consider that there could be a universal access to an experience that would be transformative, specifically what is said about Eleusis, because you can't ever know what exactly went on there because people weren't allowed to talk about it on pain of death. But um, 
what we think one of the things that came about there was that people came out of the experience absent their fear of death. And that's just where I started this conversation with you, that these kinds of transformative experiences can really do that for you. So that, to me, that would be the ideal circumstance for the family you're describing, would be to be embedded in a culture where everybody, every person, any, and, and for, with the Eleusinian mystery, it was anybody who could speak Greece, Greek and had never committed a murder. And it didn't matter what gender they were. It didn't matter whether they were uh, what social part of the stratum they were. They Everybody was expected to go through that experience at least once in their life. And I think that, to me, would be the ideal situation if we could institute that. Somehow you came across information about a philosopher named Peter Jenkinson. Hmm. Stephen. Stephen. Okay, Stephen Jenkinson. Thank you. And you read a book of his or more. And then, in your words, you go to Iceland to study with him. Yeah, I did. What is that? And look to like? Wales. So, <laughs> so tell us, what does that look like? I mean, you you get on a plane and you go to a city and you call the man on the phone or you write him a letter or how do you go to study with someone? No, I enrolled in a program that he put together, which he described as the Orphan Wisdom School. Ah. And I agreed to participate for several years in uh, uh, doing some readings, listening to some lectures, and to attend these um, group experiences where there were probably between 25 and 50 other participants, including my partner. So you went there. to school. Oh, yeah. Thank and, you. You know, you can probably tell um, I'm a wordy individual, and I really like, <laughs> uh, I like language a lot. And this fellow is a masterful wordsmith. He is just a beautiful writer and an even more beautiful speaker. And it's just delightful to listen to him talk. I very much appreciate how you speak and how you form words. Uh, I, it's been a delightful uh, interviewing you once again. And uh, I hope we'll continue this in the future, really. I think uh, you have a lot to teach us. And uh, it's my privilege to give you a, pl a platform to do so. Thank you so much, Dr. Miller. It's always a, pr a privilege to have an opportunity to be in conversation with you. To be continued. And thank you all for joining us for today's rendition of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 9 a.m. or any time on the archive. Just go to mindbodyhealthpolitics.org and you can listen to uh, any of our programs. Until we meet again, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.